Think Again with Borderlands Cooperative. Join us for critical conversations about things that matter. Every Friday at 10am on 3CR Community Radio. 855am on your dial. And on 3CR Digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. So together, let's think again about important matters affecting us, like economics, politics, education, health, climate, and what we can do about it all. Welcome to Think Again, presented to you by Borderlands Cooperative, an organisation that has been dedicated to social change for over 20 years. I'm Jacques Boulet. And I'm Jennifer Burrell. And today we're talking about resilience, what it means and how do we foster it. We've been thinking about resilience because the federal government announced a new initiative to identify and treat mental health problems in children. As reported in The Age, students in their final years of primary school will be the target of a new national intervention. I like the word target too. (laughs) The target of a new national intervention to tackle the growing mental health and suicide crisis among young Australians. The age group will become the new focus of the Morrison government's zero suicide goal by boosting funding and resources to identify and treat eating disorders, anxiety and depression. So the declared aim is to encourage school students to build up, to speak up, sorry, by building resilience and removing the stigma of their own suffering and seeking help. So there are a few things to unpick here. Of course we support preventive initiatives and we've said as much in previous programs. The question is, what constitutes prevention? And where or who is it directed at? This in turn relates to how we characterise the thing that we're wanting to prevent in the first place. What actually is it? So let's first talk about resilience. As a central aim of the initiative is to build up resilience in young people. The word resilience means really the capacity to recover quickly from difficulties, also sometimes rather understood in an abbreviated way as being tough, toughness. So first of all, we assume the presence of an adverse circumstance or adverse circumstances we need to recover from or toughen out. Resilience relates to situations and context. It also refers to the kind of person it is applied to. For example, a man or man, women, a woman, young or old people, people with disabilities, and their generally assumed strength or solidity. For example, recently, last week or so, cricketer Steve Smith being hit in the neck with a ball at about 150 k's per hour is tough when he comes back and makes some more empty runs between the crickets or whatever you call these things. Uh, But we would rarely apply the notion of resilience to him in that situation. And the English spectators at Lord's anyway, uh, the cricket ground where the play was happening, they continued to boo him because of being a fraud, referring to last year's sandpaper incident. Mm -hmm. And they have no regard for him being either tough or resilient. So it it depends on context and it depends on situation, how Mm -hmm. we use the word resilient. Mm -hmm. And next, uh, can we assume resilience is an individual characteristic to be fostered? 
As suggested by the government announcement, uh, the late journalist Anne Deverson, some people might remember her, uh, she came to an opposite conclusion in a book she wrote about this. The book is called Resilience. That book brought together research and her own personal memoir with a focus on her son who had struggled with mental illness. Deverson first reviewed psychological research that treated resilience as an individual personality trait or strength. But she ended up moving away from that toward idea of resilience as something relational. Uh, this was based on Anne's uh, experiences of living with and learning from U.S. the United States community activist Robert Theobald, who visited also Australia quite a couple of times. He stimulated her to expand resilience to incorporate personal, social as well as environmental connectedness. Mm. So that was quite a uh, journey she went on throughout her book. So mm -hmm. it's re very mm -hmm. interesting. And uh, she, I love the way she concluded her book. She says, looking back, I can see that initially I thought of resilience as a quality that some people possessed and others lacked. Somewhere fairly on in my reading, I realised that resilience was much more than that and infinitely more complex. Resilience is the life force that flows and connects every living thing, continually prompting regeneration and renewal. How oh, wonderful. So I find that so profound, um, uh, even after revisiting it again in preparation for this program, it always takes me by surprise when I reread it, especially resilience is the life force that flows and connects every living thing, continually prompting regeneration and renewal. And of course, it so obviously applies to our whole living environment too, on which we're dependent for our very survival. So rather than being an individual capacity or property, resilience can only really be understood as relational. Re uh, the relational in yep. which we exist within a dynamic living network of relationships. <clears throat> this returns us yet again to what we shared with listeners during our first program. That is, we're relational by nature and our health and well-being depend on it. So we'll now go to Coda by Superpod.
Okay, so this is Shebop. And so is this. And this. Shebop, a program that explores feminist issues. Beginning September 2nd, tune in Mondays, 10.30am, for a show where only women get to speak, but everyone can listen. You're listening to Jacques and Jennifer on Think Again, 3CR 855am on your dial, 3CR digital, and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Today we're talking about resilience. Is it an individual, psychological trait of every, every person, or which every person needs to have, or something more relational. Indeed, the idea of resilience as a living, collective, relational capacity emerges in research on disaster and recovery. We know that survival of, uh, of disasters such as bushfires and floods and the ability to recover is characterized by uh, strong relationships with community and the natural world. In fact, this, relation, this relationality is what characterizes resilience in the face of disaster. For example, Borderlands did uh, or collaborated in an evaluation of the reactions to bushfires in South Australia. We found that people in a rural area who were isolated from other people and who had little ability to read signs in the natural environment around them, that they were so much more endangered from not surviving the bushfire because they didn't notice dangers that, sur- that, uh, that were surrounding them. Uh, at the same time, people who had been living there for a long time, had been involved in agriculture there for a long time, they were prepared, they knew one another particularly, could warn one another, and then there was a middle group there who, like uh, weekend farmers kind of, who uh, had established let's call it some type of relationship which the older ones they were sort of second best at surviving whereas the people who were particularly on welfare they really were the ones who were most of the victims of I think seven or eight people died in that fire and they were totally isolated uh, did not have a clue about what the environment was about how it Mm. how it operates nor did they have any connections so they were vulnerable because of their lack of connections to other people, but yeah. also the, the environment around them. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so vulnerable, of course, as you say, some of them died. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so back to the federal initiative to prevent mental health problems in children and increase their resilience. So while we agree that mental health problems need to be destigmatized, and people should feel comfortable to seek help, of course, and to get support when they need it, There's obviously a a problem with conceptualising all mental health problems as individual pathology for individual treatment first up. And that consequently, all prevention needs to address foremost individual persons. At Borderlands, we have certainly done a great deal of evaluation and other policy work on things like problem gambling, uh, like problem gambling particularly, and we're all... Like with all addictions, prevention has received a lot of attention there. And it has generally focused on the prevention and reduction of harm. And therefore also, again, illustrating another characteristic of how we think about personal and public health and other afflictions, rather than go for the elimination of causes of that addiction. 
and, for example, prohibit the, the proliferation of pokies into the hearts of our suburbs, and especially in those suburbs where the most vulnerable people live, for example, working class, and where lots of disadvantaged groups are living, most preventative approaches are individualized. So we talk about responsibility, and mm. therefore we call programs responsible gambling. Mm. which G Gamble responsibly. Which basically focuses on the individual gambler. Of course, such causes of addiction, they bring lots of profit to their owners. That means having, having pokies everywhere uh, and, and their operators via taxes. And, if, and via taxes, they improve the income of governments, mm. which explains a lot why they don't want to eliminate that cause. And, yes, and of course, as we know, the gambling problems actually come from people using poker machines mm. exactly in the way yep. they designed to be used. Yeah. And that applies not just to the gambling addiction, but also to smoking, alcohol, social media, drugs, you name it. Rather than go for causes, people actually go for consequences and try to mm. minimise the harm as a consequence. So some of the things we're trying to prevent are actually generated through <laughs> regulation, policy programs, Absolutely. etc. Yeah. So another way of preventing these types of affliction and fostering resilience to deal with them and with other life conditions would be to just stop forms of government intervention, development programs and policy and programs that serve to cut off human beings from each other and the world around them. For example, we could stop stigmatising and punishing unemployed people, including people with a mental illness who have been forced onto new starts. The government could put our shared taxes to good use and raise new start payments and youth allowance to a level that actually covers food and housing. It could also stop the mafia-style extortionist practice of robo-debts, where people are told that they have been overpaid Centrelink and they have to pay up whether or not they really owe the money. These moves alone would prevent many people developing or exacerbating a mental illness, including anxiety, depression and attempts at suicide. And, and, and there are people who have actually not just attempted suicide, but have actually killed themselves. And it would help them reach some sort of equilibrium and build a future. And then they could really have a new start. And this term would actually mean something beyond some Orwellian doublespeak. So the medical dictum, first do no harm, comes to mind. Mm -hmm. Red alert. Numbers are needed at the Japurung Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japurung country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The cops are coming with eviction orders very soon. The campaign to protect country is led by Japurung traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japurung country near Ararat or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty. You're listening to Jacques and Jennifer on Think Again, 3CR, 855am on your dial. 
3CR Digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Today we're talking about resilience and the best approach to helping us all be more resilient. Based on research about resilience, the most fundamental prevention would involve fostering the living network of relationships that underpin health and well-being. It would mean leaving behind the peculiar ideology that we all exist only as atomised, singular, separate entities. It would mean leaving behind the idea that human beings just exist as economic units that produce, sell and consume. And that approach has indeed a name. It's called community development, <laughs> which seems to be a name is a bit going out of fashion. But it also would mean leaving behind the blind faith that the private market always does it best. And which brings us to the issue of the privatization of care. A good start has been recently offered by, of criticizing and looking critically at that, by Greg Jericho, a, a Guardian journalist. On Sunday, I think it was a couple of Sundays ago, actually, he wrote, oh, yes, privatizing Medicare, welcome back. Mm. And he refers to the barely hidden and then denied attempts a few years ago, uh, particularly in the lead up to the previous election, not the one which just happened, by the conservative coalition government to attack Medicare and force people onto private health care insurance. And as those accusations were, of course, run by the Labour Party uh, as part of their campaign. Uh, but uh, they were then accused, of course, of having a scare campaign, notwithstanding the fact that uh, it was really a continuous thought yes. by the conservative and, and, la and, and capital-oriented parties and, mm. and groups in our country. Yeah, and Howard would have loved to do it, but yeah. it was really politically much too canny Absol to push it through. Absolutely. And the recent pronouncements by the managing director of private health insurer NIB, Mark Fitzgibbon, they certainly, he suggested, to do away with it entirely. So Jericho, the Guardian journalist, wonders, is there any policy that the business sector doesn't believe can be solved by privatization? Mm. Especially when that privatization <laughs> will most benefit the businesses run by the person promoting it. There has already been a recent quasi-privatization of the health system via the introduction of the NDIS, which saw the end uh, for, uh, Jericho says, of the very good care people mm. received from public health groups. And they needed to switch to private therapists, often such therapists who had been working previously mm. for the public agency. And they now, of course, being paid through the NEIS. Most benefits, Jericho says, and I totally agree with him, could be as efficiently and probably more effectively delivered by just providing the public health sector with the extra money that now goes into the NDIS. But this, Jericho says, and that's important, I read from his, from his article, this is the heart of the argument, the belief that the private sector delivers things better. And yet we know this is a belief better observed in economic textbooks from the, from the 1980s than from reality. The last 30 years have clearly shown that. Mm. The U.S.'s largely privatized health system is inefficient and so disgracefully costly that sickness in the U.S. is almost a synonym for bankruptcy. So introducing an NDIS-style voucher system is essentially privatization by stealth and forevermore incentives for people to join 
private health insurance. Yeah, and of course we're hearing a lot of stories um, about the NDIS um, that even when people get the funds that they require, there's no good having funds if there's nowhere to purchase what you actually need. Totally. The last issue, the issue of the new community, which we do publish, as you know, uh, uh, is about NDIS and the effect on individuals and communities. Mm -hmm. And we have stories collected, personal stories, stories by carers, by organisations, how it actually is not a good system. And how it's panning out on the ground. Absolutely. So I'm going back to... What initially brought up this topic for us, fostering resilience in children, in a book called Relational Reality, uh, Charlene Spretnak talks about research into what helps children bounce back from intense stress, trauma, low self-esteem and at-risk behaviour. And apparently efforts are far more likely to be successful if the student has certain conditions in their life. The key factors are all relational relationships in the school and elsewhere in the child's life. This is what makes children more resilient. And actually, I'd like to refer back to some research I did a few years ago about disengaged children, who are teenagers who had dropped out of school, and what brought them back into the fold. And I talked to some teenagers at um, a school, the Pavilion, where you had one teacher to five pupils and social workers and support. And I asked, and I was talking to a few of these students, and I said, what is it? that works about this school what makes it different and one teenager she looks at me and she goes it's love (laughs) and Mm. I was Mm. gobsmacked I thought you never hear a professional Mm. use that word and then they said the the people here they really care about us they really and these were children who had come from backgrounds and schools where they'd been bullied or not cared for and they said the people here care about us and that brought them back into the fold Mm. of school Mm -hmm. attendance Mm -hmm. How great would it be if all government policies and programs first looked at what they are doing through the lens of relationality? Firstly, what effects might this policy or the program have on relationships between people and with the natural world? And then, by consequence, on the individuals and therefore then focus on individuals. (laughs) At least they could actually ask if it would damage them, whatever it is that they are introducing Mm. for people. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.